This is what Holy Scripture says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is, the, is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever ignored something because you were afraid of the changes you would have to make if you really began to think about it. It might be an annual checkup at a doctor's visit where the doctor is gonna tell you, you need to change, you need to do something about your health. Or it might be a financial advisor and that financial advisor is going to tell you that you need to take greater care of your finances. Or it might be that one closet in your living area that you just don't want to touch because you know that if you touch it, you're going to have to do something about it. You know that you should address these different issues, but you don't. Why? Because you don't really want to remind yourself of them. Addressing these issues would remind you of your inadequacies it would remind you of the ways that you need to change. But I can tell you from personal experience, ignoring these things doesn't make them go away. Christians can neglect thinking about God's holiness for similar reasons. You might be glad to think about God's love or his mercy, but God's holiness, well, it makes a demand on your life. 
It confronts you in your disobedience, challenges you in your apathy, and compels you to serve the Lord in difficult ways. But beholding and embracing your holy God helps you to worship him. It helps you to obey him, and it helps you to serve him. So today I want to direct your attention to Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, God is commissioning his prophet Isaiah to carry forward a message of judgment and hope to the nation. But before Isaiah can be sent, God wants to reveal himself to Isaiah in a very special way. I hope that Isaiah's vision will help you to behold God more. And as you behold your holy God, it will help you to repent before him and serve him. In the first four verses of Isaiah 6, the first thing that you will see is that you are meant to behold your holy God. So the first thing that you'll see in the first four verses of Isaiah 6 is that you are to behold your holy God. The, the prophet Isaiah received this prophecy in a time that was very tumultuous. It was unstable and chaotic. For much of the first five chapters in the book of Isaiah, you see that the nation has completely descended into sin. God says of his people in Isaiah 1, 5, the whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. Everyone loved a bribe. The religious leaders were corrupt and the whole land is filled with idols from valley to mountaintop. On top of that, the, the King Uzziah, the king who had ruled the nation for 50 years, he had just died. So one of the last remaining sources of stability in the nation was gone. Yet in this year of instability and upheaval, Isaiah the prophet gets a vision from the Holy God. The first verse says this, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Even when human kings die, and evil seems to be triumphing, our God reigns. And he reigns in our day too. God is presented as a king in this passage. And like a king, he sits on a majestic throne, indicating that he rules over his subjects. This throne is high and lifted up. The throne of a king conveys power, majesty, and glory. But it is not just the throne that conveys kingship. The Lord also has a robe, and this robe fills the entire temple. Just as the length of a bride's dress is meant to showcase her beauty, the length of the train of a robe of a king communicates his majesty. And the train of this robe fills the entire temple. Imagine the Rogers Center filled with a meticulously crafted robe all throughout it. This is no ordinary king. This holy king, this holy God, is also surrounded by servants. Not human servants, but heavenly creatures called seraphim. The text says each had six wings. With two he covered his face, 
and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. The seraphim were not created with six wings because it looks cool. I mean, it does look really, really cool. But they were given six wings so they could be in the presence of a holy God. Why? Because getting this close to a holy God is dangerous. Just as a fireman's suit is designed to guard against the blaze and heat of the flames, the seraphim were created to survive the presence of a holy God. There are two wings to cover the seraphim's face so they don't just immediately drop dead as they see God. They have wings to fly and to cover their feet. This is because even the ground that your holy God occupies is devoted to him. And the seraphim's feet are not worthy to touch the ground that the Lord occupies. And the seraphim then call out to one another, and they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This message gets to the heart of who God is. In the Hebrew language, repetition of a word is often used to emphasize a point. So when a point is emphasized three times, it is highly significant. God is most holy, abundantly holy, overwhelmingly holy. But what exactly is holiness? Well, when we think of what holiness means for our lives, we can often think that it means to be morally pure. It means to be blameless and free from sin's grip. We hear God's command to imitate him as he says, be holy as I am holy. And we can think in categories of moral purity. Holiness does describe moral purity. But it also means much more than that. It means to be set apart or to be devoted to. God set apart different things devoted to him. In the Old Testament, there was a holy place. There was a holy nation. There were holy, holy priests. There were lots of holy things. And that can also describe us in the New Covenant. We are to be devoted, fully consecrated, and set apart to God and his work. But there's an aspect of holiness which uniquely describes God. God is set apart and completely different from everything else in all creation. He has created it all. And every single creature, every molecule, is dependent upon him. In this passage, we see our God's distinctness. We see his complete otherness. He is the great other. He is called the Lord, Yahweh of hosts. This means that he is the Lord of angel armies. One word from his mouth and he mobilizes legions of angel armies into action that can instantly defeat the fiercest human army. This holy God is all-powerful. And his rule extends to all the earth. The seraphim cry out, the whole earth is filled with his glory. The seraphim are expressing that even in a broken world, God's holiness overflows into all of his creation. 
Remember the first time you looked at an ocean or the first time you looked at a grand mountain. And what did you feel? You felt really, really, really small. This is just the shadow of God's holiness touching down in creation. And speaking of things that make you feel really small, look with me at verse 4. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. Have you ever been beside someone who's a little bit obnoxious and has their car just blasting music so loud that the car is literally shaking when you're beside them? Yeah? Well, think that, but times a thousand. The temple shakes at the voice of one seraph. So this is how powerful God is, that the creatures that are closest to him shake the entire temple with their voice. If the creatures are that powerful beside him, how much more powerful is God? Not only that, the entire temple is filled with smoke. This shows the awesomeness and the power of God. God's power, might, and holiness, well, they're on full display. Is this the God you worship? Does this describe the God you pray to? Does the God you worship make you tremble? Or does he tremble before your every wish and desire? Do you worship the God who all creatures will one day bow down before? Or do you worship a God who bows down to you? Let your vision of God be informed by his word and know that the one true God, well, he is a big God. Christian, beholding and looking at your holy God helps you trust him. Your God reigns. We live in a day that can sometimes feel greatly unstable. We are unsure of what the future holds for people of faith in our country. Over the past month, several banks have collapsed, the financial system feels very vulnerable, and inflation just goes up and up and up and up and up. There is a war in Europe where the outcome seems uncertain. But rest assured, that your God is in complete control. You can trust him. In uncertain and unstable times, you can trust him. He reigns. Don't shy away from God's holy character and his promises, because that will be a big part of what will sustain you through the instability that you're going through. Pray that God's holiness grips your heart. Study and read this passage in Isaiah 6 on your own. I remember when I was in university reading through and studying Isaiah 6, and this passage just hit me. It showed me how big and holy my God really is. I remember being struck by my personal sinfulness and being overwhelmed by God's holiness. Have you ever been so moved by a passage of Scripture that it wrecked you? You have seen that you must look at and encounter God's holiness. But looking at His holiness is not enough. You can look and not change. But once you have looked at a holy God, 
you are confronted with a question. How then should I live? How then should I live? In verses 5 to 7, this is the question that confronts Isaiah. So the second thing that we learn in Isaiah 6 is that you must repent before your holy God. You must repent before your holy God. As Isaiah 6 progresses, Isaiah switches from speaking of the seraphim to speaking of his own response to the vision he's seen. And this vision of God has made him aware of himself like he's never been before. And he is sad, somber, and sorrowful over his sin. Verse 5 reads, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amid a people of unclean lips. He begins by crying out, Woe is me. In the previous chapter, chapter 5, woes of judgment are pronounced on the people of Judah and Israel for their great sins. By saying, woe is me, Isaiah is saying something like, judgment is coming for me. Isaiah doesn't just say, woe are they. He says, woe is me. God's holiness has brought Isaiah's own sin to the forefront of his mind. Isaiah knows that he has sinned against the Lord and that he is helpless and hopeless before him. He says, for I am lost. The word in the original language translated as lost has a much stronger sense. He's been destroyed, ruined, cut off, undone. He sees his utter inability to stand in the presence of God and he's shaken by it. He knows that judgment must come to him. Why is he so distraught? Well, notice that he says, for I have unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. As Isaiah has seen his God, he's exposed as unclean. The immense light of God's holiness and his presence has exposed Isaiah's darkness. Throughout the pages of Scripture, the presence of God shows people their own unworthiness and their own sin. After Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden, they hide when they meet God. When God comes out of the whirlwind to challenge Job, Job ends by saying, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When Simon Peter first meets Jesus and sees Jesus' greatness, when Jesus gives him much more fish than he thought that Jesus could, Simon's response is to say, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. The light of God's character exposes your sin. I was watching this video where a cleaner is cleaning a room that seems relatively clean to the naked eye, but then they bring out a special ultraviolet light, a UV light, and this light shows that the room is actually filthy. God's holiness is like a UV light on your heart. The presence of his holiness shines on you. 
and exposes how sinful you are. Has God's presence done this to you recently? Have you spent enough time with the Lord and in his word for your sin to be exposed? Or do you stop yourself from dwelling upon his holy character and from reading the passages of God's word that would convict you and press upon you the gravity of your sin? Exposing your sin and yourself before God and his word may be painful, but it's worth it. Your sin will not satisfy you, and obeying the Lord will always bring much more enduring joy than disobedience does. How do you talk about your sin? I have noticed that when people confess their sins, they often hesitate to say, I have sinned against the Lord. They may say something like, I've been struggling lately, or I fell. I'm concerned that using these type of words can minimize sin. When confessing your sin, be like the prodigal son and say, I have sinned against heaven and against my father. Sometimes we can look at the sins of this world and the sins of others and view those as terrible. But when it comes to our own personal sin, well, that's not really as bad. And then you can make peace with the remaining sins of your life. Because you can say, well, those sins aren't as bad as what these people are doing. Some of you might have put to death long-standing hideous sins in your life. Praise God for that. But are you continuing to fight the sins that don't seem to have immediate consequences right now in your life? Perhaps sins like anger towards someone you love. Perhaps sins of the tongue, sins of gossip, covetousness, laziness, and lack of self-control. But while these sins are not as immediately devastating in their effects, they still are acts of disobedience against the Lord. Bring these sins into the light. Confess them to another brother and sister. Bring them to the light of God's holiness and grace. By the grace of Christ, you will have the power to defeat these sins. For those of you who aren't Christians, I want to challenge you to compare yourself to God. Don't compare yourself to other people. As I said earlier, it is easy to compare yourself to other people and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as they are. But the person you ought to compare yourself to is God. And as you've seen, the God of the Bible is perfect. And in comparison, well, you're anything but perfect. You are unclean before him. The God of the Bible dwells in blinding, unapproachable light and is completely pure and separate from sin. Are you completely pure? Are you separate from sin? When you break his law, you offend him. Do you see the horror of your sin before him? God also gives you hope, though. Isaiah has seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He has come to the end of himself. He has immense guilt over his sin. 
But notice that God doesn't end there. God provides a way for Isaiah to be atoned. For the original audience in Isaiah's day, these verses in 6 and 7 resolve an issue that has been happening in the first five chapters of the book. And the issue is this, how can a person who sins so greatly be made right before God? Because in the first five chapters, there, are, there is judgment, but there is also hope. For example, even amid the woes of judgment, God promises in Isaiah 1.18, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. The original reader would be asking, how on earth can my sins be forgiven? And they would find hope in verse 6 of this chapter. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah's sins are fully forgiven by God. His sin was atoned for. He went from the darkest moment in his life to the most joyous moment of his life. What does it mean to atone for sin? Well, atone comes from the word atonement. And atonement is a result of the propitiation that God does on our behalf. Those who were once enemies of God become his friends. It is to be made at one with God. And since Adam and Eve sinned, all human beings begin their life at war with God, hostile against God, enemies of God. We are unclean before him. And since God is absolutely morally pure, he cannot simply sweep our injustice and our sin and the world's sin under a rug. No, he must deal with it. And how does he deal with it? Well, he deals with it through, through sacrifice. Notice that the burning coal which comes to Isaiah's lips comes from the altar. The altar is where animal sacrifices are performed in the Old Testament. By taking the burning coal from the altar and applying it to Isaiah's lips, God is showing that sacrificial atonement is the source of Isaiah's cleansing. But ultimately, we know that Isaiah wasn't atoned for by animal sacrifices. In Hebrew 10.4, it says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Isaiah was forgiven based upon the same way you are forgiven, through Jesus Christ's sacrifice. He is the one who came to earth to live a perfectly holy life and who makes atonement for sinful people. And I believe that this vision of the holy God in Isaiah 6 is actually a vision of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? Well, in John 12, 41, 
John brings up the verses we will soon look at in verses 11 to 13. And after bringing those verses up, he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. John is saying that Isaiah saw a vision of Jesus Christ. Think about that. This holy God that we have just spent some time looking at today, this is Christ. And I can only imagine as the coal from the altar is applied to Isaiah's lips, taking away his guilt and sin, Christ himself knows that he must come down from his throne and die for Isaiah. And that is what Christ did. Instead of wearing a robe that filled the temple, he wore a robe offered by a Roman soldier. Instead of being high and lifted up on a throne, he was high and lifted up on a cross. Instead of being adored by angel armies, he was mocked by the watching crowds. Instead of being distant from sin, he takes sins in our place so that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ is the suffering servant who Isaiah said in chapter 53, verse 4, that he'd be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. If you don't know Christ, he is a, he is a loving Savior who is willing to pay the penalty for your sins to make you right before a holy God. But you must come to him. You must turn away from your sins and come to your Savior. Isaiah says in chapter 56, verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Notice in that passage, it says, well he may be found. Well he's near. You never know how long you have to repent. How do you know how long you will have to live? You don't. So what are you waiting for? Come to the Lord Jesus today. Believe on him today. Repent before him today. And he will give you forgiveness today. Praise God for that. Christian, the Lord Jesus Christ took away your sin, your iniquities, your transgressions, so that he may present you as fully devoted to God. Doesn't this make you thankful? It certainly should. Praise God for these glorious truths. But it also should make you want to live a holy life. God's called you to be holy. Now you must walk in a manner worthy of this gospel. Put your confidence in the blood of Jesus Christ and live a life worthy of his gospel. Live a holy life. Put sins to death in your life. Kill the remaining sin in your life. And take this Passion Week to confess your sins before the Lord and repent before him 
And remember all that Christ has done for you. So far, we have seen that Isaiah beheld the holy God. And his response to this holy God was to repent before him. But that is not the only way that Isaiah responds. In verses 8 to 13, we also see that Isaiah serves his holy God. So the third thing we see is that Isaiah serves his holy God. Kids, maybe recently you have been asked by your parents to do something hard. Maybe it was cleaning your room or vacuuming or just something you didn't want to do. And you were a little bit like Isaiah. You were saying something like, woe is me. But what if your parents set you to pick up like something, something like McDonald's or Chick-fil-A? And as a result, you get a McFlurry or a milkshake for your efforts. Would you be saying, woe is me? Or would you be saying, send me, send me, I volunteer? That's probably what you'd be saying, right? Si similarly, Isaiah responds eagerly to God's request for him to serve him. Verse 8 reads, And I heard the voice of the Lord, saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? God is looking for someone to proclaim his message. We will look mainly at verse 8 and briefly touch upon verses 9 to 13. This message is an unpopular one. And you can see that even in the question that God puts forward, who will go? And everyone's just silent, <laughs> like nobody's going. No one in the land wants to go and complete God's task. But Isaiah eagerly cries out, here I am, send me, send me, Lord. Isaiah has been awestruck by his holy God. He has seen God for who he really is, and now all he wants to do for the rest of his days is to serve him. He has received the overflowing love of God, and it is his privilege and honor of a lifetime to serve him. The task Isaiah is called to by God is an enormously challenging one. It's difficult. Isaiah is commanded by God to preach to a people who probably will not, for the most part, will not heed the message. The people will continue to reject God's message over and over. We see that in verses 9 to 13. And in God's mysterious providence, he will actually harden the people's hearts to reject his message. Yet at the same time, the people will also harden their own hearts. Isaiah will spend the rest of his life preaching a message that most of the nation will almost entirely reject. Why is he so enthusiastic? Why is he so eager? He's seen his holy God. He's been forgiven by him. And God's holiness functions like a well-balanced meal does to an athlete. It provides him the nutrition he needs to help him serve his God. For you to serve God over the long term, beholding his character and his holiness must be a regular part of your diet as a Christian. What aspect of the vision Isaiah received 
helped him to fulfill his commission. The text doesn't say all of it. It is all of God that propels him to the mission. God's holy kingship over all the earth gives him unshakable confidence. God's moral purity gives him a sense of absolute horror over his sin. And certainly God's love has given him a deep gratitude for all that God has done for him. And notice that God uses people who were once rebellious. He saves them, he forgives them, he justifies them, and then he sends them out. Praise God for that. Do you want to serve God faithfully for years? Well, regularly gaze upon who he is and all that he's done for you. For many of you, a big part of your Christian awakening was that you discovered God for who he really is. You may have already been saved, but then you read books, or you watched YouTube videos, or you listened to sermons that helped you see how big your God is. You discovered God's sovereignty and salvation, and you were struck by his majesty and his magnitude. And you came to this church, and you heard God's word proclaimed time and time again. And what happened was that you saw your holy God. Praise God for that. But I know from personal experience that you must remind yourself of these doctrines. Don't let the doctrine of God's holiness be a one-time discovery. But re-encounter it and let it continue to shape and to change you. Do the work to press on to know your holy God more so that you can serve him more effectively. This can be a fuel for a lifetime of service. What type of service does this text call for? Well, Isaiah is called to share a message with the people of Israel. Similarly, each of us is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ has done great things for you, and you ought to share with others how much he's done for you. But there's a problem, right? You live in a country that often feels like Isaiah's day. People's hearts are hardened and even hostile to the truth. You may have neighbors, coworkers, and family members who just seem hardened. And you feel, should I really share the gospel with them again? But you should. This can be discouraging and can cause you to lose heart. But your God, but your God reigns. And he has given you authority and power to proclaim his message wherever you go. And he will be with you as you take steps of faith to share his gospel in whatever context you find yourself in. Maybe God is calling some of you here today to be sent to help spread the gospel in another land or to step into ministry or help support another church. God will help you as you respond and say, here am I, send me, Lord, send me. But for all those who want to be sent, it must, you must be reminded of this. The more holy a life you live, the more useful you will be. Paul in the book of 2 Timothy, verse 20, says, Therefore, 
If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, ready for every good work. This church needs elders and more deacons. Men of the church, maybe you are holding on to sin that prevents you from being an elder. Or maybe you are holding on to sin that prevents you from serving as a deacon. Have you thought about how your clinging to sin affects other people? Have you thought about the fact that if you work on your holiness and kill sin in your life, you can help many other brothers and sisters in this church? Think about that. And let that be a motivation that leads you to live a holy life and to aggressively put sin to death. There are secondary applications to hear from this text. Perhaps you find yourself in a, in a season or a situation that you are meant to serve God in a very difficult way. It could be that you are taking care of your family members. It could be that you're in a difficult job. Think and ponder God's character. Think and ponder all that God has done for you in Christ to rescue you from a, a life of sin. And then respond to your holy king by serving him by gl with gladness, even when it's hard. There are some things in life that you don't want to attend to, but you, you know that you should. Things like going to a doctor for an annual checkup, cleaning your room and attending to your finances may be painful, but they result in clarity, order, and peace. Gazing at your holy God and responding to his holiness may be uncomfortable, but it will lead to a more joyful Christian life. Why? Because you'll be doing the will of your Father. I want to end by looking at the burning coal in verse 6. As the burning coal is applied to Isaiah's lips, it must have been really, really, really painful. But that burning coal was necessary. It cleansed him. It healed him. It changed him. And sometimes staring into God's holiness and his character can be something like that burning coal. It can be uncomfortable. It can hurt. It can confront you. It will challenge you. It will convict you. But ultimately, by God's grace, it will also change you. It will change you into a more holy and humble Christian. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your glorious word. We thank you for the vision that you gave to Isaiah and we pray that it may change our lives. We pray that you may, help, you, you may help us to confront the sins in our life and to put them to death by the grace of Christ. That you would help us to serve you in difficult ways. Lord, apply your word to your people. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.